This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. A very good evening to all and welcome to tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. Uh, my name is Nimrod Mbele and as always it's a pleasure to be in your company. Um, as you know, the show seeks to bring not only a fresh perspective into corporate governance challenges, but it also you know, provides some level of in-depth analysis from individuals who, are, who understand their landscape of, of governance, it is, as it were. If you missed our show last week, uh, do us a favor, go to the website, retrieve the podcast um, at www.highfm.com and you know, tell me exactly what your thoughts are in respect to issues that we've spoken about last week um you know as you know um should you be interested i implore you to be you know to participate in our conversation tonight our sml sms line is three four five one nine, and of course my email address is nimrod at high high move on swiftly uh let me pay my homage to you know those who came before me kathy uh, Sasha, Vusi, DJ Flo, Mandy, and Lindy. Thank you guys for keeping uh, the hard listeners entertained. Uh, moving on swiftly, you know, um, you know, tonight um, we are going to reflect slightly on some of the topical issues that have happened. Uh, one being uh, the, the 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 resignation of Home Affairs Minister uh, Melusma Gigaba and. Um, and the question for me is, um, you know, is this a good news or bad news? Um, and I'm sure most people would regard this as, as good news, considering a number of uh, uh, issues against him. Firstly, there was the, 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 the Supreme Court appeal, uh, uh, and which was upheld by, by the findings of the, of, of, you know, of the High Court. Or rather, he, he was found to have lied uh, to the High Court uh, on, on the Fireblade saga. And of course, the public protector also, you know, was quite pushy uh, that uh, the, the the president had to act uh, quite decisively against him. And there you go; uh, he's no longer there. He finally bowed down. Um, but what does it mean? Um, does it mean we're going to have a cabinet reshuffle? Uh, it might augur, you know, some good news to other people. But consider the fact that you've got like less than six months before you go into having elections. Uh, would are we going to have you know minister acting for six months? But again, what does it take to become effective minister? It it does takes a while. Uh, but we hear that Blaise Zimande will be sitting or will remain in the Ford while the president is applying his mind as to who is going to you know uh, uh, substitute to Melusi. Um, hopefully, um, you know we'll have another very reputable uh, minister coming through. But for me, what is of interesting is that, you know, we have never seen, since the dawn of democracy, ministers, you know, resigning in a space of three months. You know, um, w- for me, that, that spells good news in that we have had, you know, who just resigned, fell on his sword, with, you know, merits or demerits around him. Bottom line, he, he resigned. Minister Gugaba as well, he resigned. But what does that tell in terms of the new administration around governance issues. Uh, surely there's something that we can all um, you know, look forward to see happening because this, in my mind, I'm sure minds of South Africans, more generally is that they, there's, there's, there's hope. Um, you know, um, we, we're now beginning to walk the talk, not so much about talking, but we're seeing actions. Because I, for one, don't think these ministers resigned because they wanted to. Uh, they resigned but because they had to resign, you know. Um, so there's there's a bit of a correlation between what pronouncements are and also the actions that that follows. But anyway, that's not the, the gist of of, of tonight's conversation. 
but I'm sure my colleagues, uh, whom I'll introduce shortly, will have a view or two regarding those issues. But but fundamentally, tonight's uh, the, the thrust of tonight's conversation um, for me was stimulated by Barbara Hogan's um, uh, representation before the Zondo Commission of of inquiry into state capture. Uh, I found it very fascinating, uh, and hence I I you know in, uh, brought two of my colleagues here, John Matheson from Accelerated Property Fund and Mr. Justice Ndaba from Knowledge Inkers Group. In my mind, when you take, uh, you know, a corporate governance practitioner and a strategist, you simply can't go wrong. On that note, colleagues, good evening and welcome. Thank good you. Evening, good Doc. evening, Nimrod. How are you, going? How are you guys doing this uh, heat? <laughs> never gets boring in South Africa. Never, never, no, no absolutely. Uh, I think... <laughs> You know, as I was mulling over these these types of questions, what what came to mind, and I'm sure I'm, I'm hopefully Joanne will will share some light here. The the, the 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 is the commission into state capture only an obsession of the elites, or it does resonate with every single South African out there? I think it's phase one of a process. I think to a large extent, ordinary citizens have been very aware of what has been going on in regard to state capture. I think what they didn't know was the depth and how bad it was. But I don't think there was any doubt in the average person's mind that this was going on. And I think citizens have been very frustrated and have felt disempowered. So I think it's a first phase in that the mandate of the Zondo Commission is to explore the truth and make recommendations. The key is, are our institutions still strong enough for people to go to jail? And I think if that phase doesn't happen, you will see another wave of huge discontent So this is only the start of a process, but what is very important about it is that those appearing before the Zondo Commission feel safe enough to tell the truth. And in the previous environment, there were consequences for telling the truth. People lost their jobs. So that is a huge plus in its favor. Well, it's good to hear um, if, 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 you know, uh, the first phase, obviously, it's almost like a preparatory phase or as a, a launch pad for, um, you know, follow-up, which hopefully might result into tangible actions because we, South Africans are tired uh, of commissions after commissions, you know, because these commissions, uh, uh, you know, that's a perception out there that they, they, they are nothing else but a waste of time. You know, uh, because nothing of substance comes out. Just as your take, um, so you also view that it's not just an elitist view. It has a profound. It has a profound um, uh, 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 sense of what actually happening in South Africa from ordinary point of view. Yes. Good evening, Doc. Um, to a large extent, I I I, I do agree with my colleague. Um, my only concern, though, is that um, I just hope, you know, in terms of what the commission had requested uh, citizens to do is to approach it. Every other person that has information or evidence of some sort about 
alleged um, activities that were wrong needs to approach the commission. And that I don't see happening uh, at the rate that I would like. I hope it does. Because if that doesn't happen, the concern would be that you begin to view the commission as a platform for disgruntled people who who were either dismissed by the previous president or they somehow they were aggrieved one or the other. We need to avoid that. We need to have a situation where the commission is seen to be applicable to all, even those that uh, either become in either of the camps, for instance, or um, people that uh, by and large are ordinary people. Themselves need to come forward and, and, and approach the commission about what they know. So that, I, I, I'm afraid, I haven't seen happening quite often. And that is why I'm saying that if, if, we, if we don't get a lot of people approaching the commission with their information, which is why I'm worried when you start seeing uh, opposition parties, for instance, like the EFF recently, publishing their own uh, questions to Minister Gordon. I mean, if they have information, why is it that as an entity, as, a, as, as an important stakeholder in the political sphere, why is it that they don't approach the commission with the information that they have? Uh, and then rather they send uh, 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 Minister Godan with 33 questions and so on and so forth. So my, 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 my input would be around that to say, look, we need to ensure that the commission doesn't become the platform for the disgruntled so that we, 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 we know we, we, the, 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 its output becomes more acceptable by and large. But what it has succeeded in doing is it has amplified a lot of information that, for instance, the last time we dealt with similar kind of information was during the Gupta leaks when we saw the emails, when uh, it, all of us in South Africa became aware of what really happened behind closed doors. I think this commission now is taking us back there in in, in that we're beginning to, uh, certainly with the the, 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 the the testimony now of uh, Minister Hogan, you begin to see what happened and you can connect mm. uh, some of the doors and to see th where the pressures were, where other things that, um, you know, uh, uh, pushed to what is we're saying now is state capture, how they occurred. So it begins to amplify that. So th for that... Um, I'm, I'm quite happy. But here's something that, that I, I want to piggyback on, which I think is of, of critical importance. Uh, you, you have alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, uh, some individuals might use the platform because they're disgruntled mm. uh, and as, as the way of, you know, venting out at, at, and, you know, obviously, you know, certainly scores. Uh, but be that as it may, you will have those kinds of individuals. But your take on Barbara Hogan's representation, because I thought it was quite profound um, in, in, in her uh, 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 utterances, particularly on the kind of pressures that she, she had to endure uh, when she was obviously opposed to the appointment of Shebonga Gama as, as a CE of, of Transnet. I think she's been very courageous because even at the time when she was appointed minister, she strongly opposed Zuma uh, forcing Gama on her 
and she stated that on several occasions. So she was completely disempowered in her role as minister, and that cascades further down because the board then of um, the state-owned entity was disempowered in performing its fiduciary duty. So they were actually in breach of the duty of care, skill and diligence because they were had this person, the CEO, foisted on them. So the whole problem cascades down and that's how you can see one of the ways in which state capture gets embedded. So I think Barbara Hogan has been courageous and she's been very coherent in explaining what she did and what were the consequences for her and for the board itself. Um, so, again, it remains to be seen what happens from here. People want much more than recommendations. And if you look at any change that comes about in any country, it always starts with citizens. So while you've got the EFF as rabble-rousers, because remember they're not in government so they can say what they like without any consequences, you need active citizens like Corruption Watch to continue pushing away at this so that we ensure that, in fact, there are consequences for the perpetrators of these horrendous... It is interesting that you, you have referred to courageous leadership. Um, you know, when you look at how uh, Barbara Hogan articulated the kind of um, quagmire she found herself at. But here's a, a question for me, um, which, which obviously touches on, on courageous leadership. Um, you know, do politicians or are politici politicians aware that by the virtue of them ascending to um, that position, they're no longer accountable to the party, but they are accountable or loyal to the constitution? I tell you what, because if um, there, there's been a very good track record of comprehension at that level, would not be seeing this kind of deviation, uh, which is to me, uh, all those who sit in in, in position uh, are at the behest of the appoint of the appointer, not so much about the constitution. That's why we are struggling um, for us to gravitate towards a, a, a an appreciation of what really it means to. Uh, what 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 constitutional democracy means? Um, we need to see more and more people like Barbara Hogan uh, uh, wearing a courageous leadership hat and saying, "Wait a second, um, yes, you might have appointed me, but ultimately, you know, I'm going to use constitution as a prescript." It's very very clear to me that the ANC does not understand that. I mean, even Cyril, who's a lawyer, has said his job is to unify the party. That is not his job. His job is to govern the country and to act in the best interests of its citizens who has given him a mandate, as you've said. And he said that over and over again. And the party has reiterated that mantra for a long time. So there clearly isn't an understanding that they serve at the behest of the people who elected them. And part of that problem is the whole electoral system where People in government are not elected by the people. So it reinforces their view that they are not accountable to the people. They're accountable to the people who appointed them and the whole system of patronage and cadre deployment. Just as your, your take on that. <laughs> Look, um, my view is slightly different, um, but 
um, in South Africa, we're lucky that we do have now case law, and we also have precedent in, um, for instance, in the constitutional uh, ruling last year in the Zuma case, um, the constitutional court was quite clear as to what comes first, party or country. So there the is case law that does that. So that was clarified, that allegiance is first to the country, then to the party. The I think the ANC benefited on this uh, proportional representation uh, system because if you recall, actually it was put on the table by the minority parties who at the time were scared of uh, the majority that were, was going to swallow them. So if you recall, in 97, uh, 96 um, and 97, the proportional representation approach was really put on the table by minority parties, not knowing that ultimately it was going to work against them. And I think that was where the beginning of of this party deployment came from, in the sense that people had to then in caucuses have to 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 follow what the party line was. And in fact, all of the parties currently, not just the ANC. If you look at what is happening in Parliament, in Caucasus, I mean, we've been there. If you don't toe the line of the party, whether it was, whether it's the EFF, DA, or whoever, all of them make you toe the line uh, or, or find a way of kicking you out in, uh, somehow. So all of these parties are guilty of that in, this, in the country. So uh, we have a problem of an electoral system, which we need to review. But what I like, what is happening currently, is that um, the corrosion and the corruption of destabilizing institutions is what we are restoring now. I mean, if you would recall, this morning, uh, the um, right to know uh, won the case of um, having an, a transparent process of the ND, NDPP interviews that are going to happen, you know, remember the, the NDPP interviews are happening. So today the, the ruling was, uh, let it be open to the Because it's in a presence of the, the public. media, yes. You know? and, and, and so, you see, what, what we're beginning to see, because the problem that we had was institutions uh, had been corrupted, one way or the other, because they then... Um, so by cleaning up these institutions, because remember, the problem that we have, especially in the criminal justice system, is if those institutions cannot, for instance, prosecute, because the job of the, com the commission cannot charge people. The, jo the commission will issue a report, but it is the job of the, the, the institutions to then say we have enough from the report that we can now begin to chase people and then prosecute them, right? Mm -hmm. But they couldn't before. But if we clean up the institutions such as those, they could come forward and, and charge people. And that's how you would see people going to jail. Because because we are a constitutional uh, state, evidence must still be led for those people to actually end up in jail, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. If you've just joined us, it's now half past uh, six, and I'm joining studio 
by Joanne Matheson from uh, Accelerate Property Fund and, of course, Mr. Justin Zindaba from Knowledge Inkers Group. We are deliberating the representation made by a number of people, but, in, but tonight the focus is mainly on Barbara Hogan. Uh, we feel very strongly that um, she's been quite courageous in making those kind of presentation, and, and you really get to appreciate the extent to which uh, you know senior polit- or cabinet men, uh, cabinet ministers have been under enormous pressure to make decisions that ordinarily they would not have. Uh, going forward, um, you know, this is one thing that I want perhaps maybe uh, uh, Joanne to share light on. Um, you know, Barbara Hogan at some point accuses the Ains leadership of forcing uh, 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 or, you know, blurring the lines between party mm. and, and, and and the party and state. Um, at the first really, yes, it's true. Um, but the question for me is, the mo- well, my, 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 my only concern is that once people are out of the system, that's where you get more and more these kinds of affirmation. Mm-hmm. And when they are still inside, uh, we all we are told that look, we still toying the party line. Uh, I mean, there's been you know a number of complaints about the blurring of lines between party and state. Um, it's not only now. Uh, one might argue, say, but why not? Why now? Why all along you have not been as vociferous as you have been today, uh, or unless the person is missing the point? Um, you know, your thoughts about that. I think in the case of Barbara Hogan, she stood up to the extent that she could until she decided that her principles had been breached and she resigned. But it's always, these things are often very difficult, especially if somebody's a Mm breadwinner. I assume that she was in a position to resign financially. But it's a lot harder if somebody doesn't have the luxury of making a choice purely on moral grounds. And that's the case for many people. Um, But I think if you look at the American system, for example, where in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, there's a wide range of views. And each person, because they're elected by a constituency, they have the freedom to voice their opinion. Even within a party, you have a whole lot of people with different views. So, and so that's are you more therefore, robust. Are you therefore saying this thing of, uh, uh, you know, we have internal processes, we must exhaust internal processes before, before going outside, it doesn't fly? No, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, you should follow internal processes. That's not the issue. The issue for me is that you should still be able to exercise your conscience in a vote. Uh, and the person with the strongest argument, rational argument, at the end of the day but, should but, win. But, but here's a bone of contention. One, you, you, you are obviously bound to follow the protocol, so to speak, in terms of how issues are handled internally. But you also, uh, you know, uh, your own moral standing, um, wherein you feel so obliged that your constituencies need to know um, so I, uh, how do you draw the line? One level, you, you appreciate the fact that there are processes that need to be followed. But another level, when you see that your own internal processes do not yield uh, um, you know, results that, that, that give confidence in terms of how, how issues have been handled. Surely one could go outside and say, listen, well, I mean, uh, there's nothing wrong. I'm not putting the party, I'm not putting the organization into disrepute. 
but I'm also accountable to the general public. It is in their best interest that I put this position forward. Would you not agree with that? Well, I I think it talks to the robustness of your governance framework. So that that should say, if you followed internal processes and it hasn't worked, then you go to the next layer, whether it's above you or, or depending at which point you're entitled to go to a higher authority. So there should be proper governance processes telling you what to do if, the, if one level doesn't work. So running a country still requires the same type of governance from a principal point of view as it does for a company. And I think you should... Obviously, the media and independent media plays a huge role, but you, you do have to be careful what are the issues. For example, things of national security... And they have to be definitely within the definition of what is national security. Shouldn't go to the media unless every other avenue is exhausted. But all other things that go to the media, for example, the the criteria is, is it in the best interests of the public? But you also have to uh, respect the framework that you work in because if you flout it too often, you break the trust of your colleagues and you often can't restore that. So if you start flouting the rules, you've got to understand what are the consequences of what you're doing and are you prepared to take those consequences. So it's, it's quite a complicated process. Now, I can see Justice is smiling, but before Justice comes through, um, we're going to take a break. Let's pay the bills and come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 19 to 7 o'clock. It's amazing how time flies. Uh, for those who have just joined us, uh, welcome. Um, I'm, in, I'm invited, um, or oh, I'm, I'm, I'm joined in studio, I beg your pardon. I'm joined in studio by uh, two colleagues. Uh, one, uh, Justice Ndaba from Knowledge Anchor Group, and Joanne Matheson from Accelerated Property Fund. And we are deliberating issues pertaining to the State capture report or the proceedings thereof. Before we went to the break, I want and I posed a question to Justice uh, or colleagues here that um, you know one of the representation made or, or, or issues made by Barbara Hogan uh, is that um, you know the former president was hell bent uh, to appoint Shabongagama as as Transnet CEO, and 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 that. Well, despite the fact that, you know, there were issues of misconduct, um, you know, leveled against him. So the, the question for me is, um, and I know, Joanne, at some point you, you did reflect it to, you know, you reflected on financial standing of individuals, um, you know, because ultimately it's all about principle or, or it's about bread and butter issues. Um, and your, your supposition clearly points to the fact that those do not have um, financial muscles are more likely to, you know, to compromise their ethic, the ethical, you know, uh, uh, you know, or, your, the, the, or their conscience you know, because they don't want to be fired. But you know, it can't be that. I don't know. From principle, it's not every single person who would uh, who who'd sustain the onslaught, uh, knowing fully the consequences thereof. Um, you know, all these people who have agreed or who subjected themselves to these kinds of uh, pressure, what do we say you know, about them from a leadership or from a character point of view? Well, I think the people who withstood Zuma, a lot of them were pushed out. 
But there are some heroes who had the gravitas, like Pravin Gordon, who have come through this, even through the darkest times of being fired as finance minister. He still played an unbelievably prominent role. So I I think he's had a high price to pay in terms of personal stress. Um, But he's been amazing. But there haven't been enough people like that. I think in a transition system, and it's the same in a company, when we moved from the NAT government to the ANC government, there wasn't a change process where people were learned how to govern. And that was seriously missing. And so I think when they'd been deprived of a good financial life and it appeared that there were opportunities to get rich quick and everybody else was doing it, it was a culture of populism that took root. And a lot of people felt, well, if that person's doing it, then I can do it. And so that culture took over. And because it was reinforced by Zuma, It got stronger and stronger and stronger. So if we look at the damage now, to get back to where we were prior to Zuma is going to be a lot harder, I think, than the transition from the nationalist government to the ANC in 1994. If you think how much Mandela achieved in a short space of time, both in terms of the morale of the country and the support behind him and the improvement in people's lives, and you compare to the destruction in wealth that has happened under Zuma for people who weren't part of the cadre system and the patronage system, it's quite devastating. Just isn't it? What are you, what's your take on this? <laughs> Look, um, I wouldn't as much as go into... Um, the the, the, the the politics side of it but I would I would say that yes I agree that um, by and large any state that does not have capacity um, and in here I talk about the just the normal and simple uh, public servants um, is is a problem in terms of delivery so one of the key um, um, achievements that we need to restore is to capacitate the state in that perspective, in showing that, because my worry all this time was that, at least from the period 2011 to to now, uh, the state, a, a lot of professionals started now avoiding to join public service. And that is not right. So we need to go back to the level where we capacitate the state and we improve the environment such that the public service space is able to attract astute professionals you know so if we do that and we create that environment uh, conducive for the professionals to function and that then goes back to what we discussed in terms of all right, if that is the case, then we need to make sure that professionals are let alone to run with the show, of, of, of especially in operations, so that, you know, every uh, sphere of governance knows what their roles are. So for me, that was the issue. The other issue that I think 
for us to be able to restore what, for instance, my colleague says, in terms of going back to the those is is to capacity to go back to a situation where institutions of government, such as, for instance, in the criminal justice system, um, those institutions in the courts. Well, we are lucky that the 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 the, the, the judicial the, co- the, co- the courts are still relatively yes. So then we go to chapter nines and restore uh, governance in those areas. Then we then go back to uh, SOEs and ensure that we create a climate of SOEs that are able to function. Because remember, in terms of our progressive functioning, SOEs play a critical developmental role. So it is in our interest as South Africa uh, that SOEs are capacitated and go back to a level where they play that critical role in, in, in the developmental vision that we have. We can't do that unless SOEs attract professionals and then professionals are able to bring them the, the, the companies, the SOEs to SOCs back to um, the right governance structures, the right operational structures. In fact, just about all SOEs are on a turnaround uh, basis at the moment. I hear you, Gore. I'm a justice, but my point, I, I, I want to slightly differ with you because um, the SOEs, yes, um, you know, from a governance point of view, um, would provide that opportunity to, you know, to 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 deliver the social mandate aspect. Uh, but it, it goes beyond that because, you know, putting boards. Um, only it's not good enough to change uh, SOEs. For an example, um, SA, SABC now, as well as SAA, technically they're bankrupt, um, you know, with, with, I would imagine, good boards. But, you know, we need a more fundamental transformation of, of the business model of the entities for them to be more sustainable. Um, yeah. One level, yes, let's, let's change the no, board, you know. But 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 at the at, at, at the root cause of some of this problem is not about uh, who sits where and their credibility, yeah. but it's also about other uh, very important issues around. Um, for example, you know, is this business viable or not? You know, and are we can we afford to bail out SAA? Can we afford to bail out SABC? Can we afford to bail out Dinel? Can we afford to bail out all the state entities of which the money could have been used? You know, elsewhere, like for example, in education. I mean, education is in a dire need of financial resources. We've seen, you know, that we're still struggling to, you know, to, to, you know, to, to provide appropriate ablution facilities for some of the schools. But we do know that uh, a lot of these SOEs, we have reference where they, at some point or the other, they were well-functioning entities, Right. Uh, 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 but still bleeding money. Well, thank you. No, 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 no. No, ESCOM was no. very successful. Mm. Even SAA for many years, uh, it was in the top five um, and certainly number one in the continent. So what, what we, exactly the point we're making that they were decapacitated to function well. And one point that I would agree with you in terms of reviewing uh, models Yes, for instance, we know that the way the funding model of SABC is structured currently, you know, the, where you're imposing 
their public mandate on the other hand and yet you want them to function on a commercial level uh, throughout already the, you know there's an imbalance there meaning that you have to review how you fund them as a state because as a state entity they play that developmental role they also play the public aspect of things which is why you impose on them your for instance your children's programs you know so that they they undertake programs that most of the time might mm. not even generate income but because they serve a national uh, vision you then say you will broadcast right meaning that you have to then uh, look at how they are funded and and in in many ways uh, uh, contribute as a stage towards the so you you have like a hybrid system um, the other ones in terms of uh, we know, ha- which is why, uh, f- for what we know now, the Guptas targeted SOEs, right? Uh, all of them, really. Some, uh, many of the times when these were targeted, a lot of them were functioning quite well. So meaning that they were targeted mainly because there was uh, a view that the balances are strong, they are able to go out to, to and borrow bonds on their own. So they they were functioning quite well. So hence I say one of the other things which includes looking at models is to reinstate a situation where we can attract professionals here which means that we have to uh, create a climate that is conducive for for a well-functioning entity. And that climate will require political will I yes, imagine. That's for sure. but, but do we have that political will which just transcend um, just this verbal trans- uh, transaction that we've seen from time to time because ultimately, for 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 SOEs and 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 to stop the rot at you know, or perhaps maybe aiding the the, the the state capture inquiry in 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 a much more progressive way would obviously need to have that kind of a strong political will. Firstly, to deploy the right people for the right jobs and hold them to account. Um, but this is not what you're seeing. We're almost seeing the new normal. Uh, we're no longer phased because we are inundated with so much of almost like colossal of corporate governance failure. Um, is there a political will? Um, and, and, and based on what we see, you know, the resignation of Nene, for an example, the resignation of Kigaba now, does that suggest there is a political will? Because these individuals are pretty much at the you know, uh, uh, center of, of state capture, to say the least. I think there's a bit of a disconnect in the vision that you... First of all, remember there's a shareholder compact. So if you have a turnaround strategy for growth, and I would... Uh, I believe that you can still have a dual mandate of a commercial and social license if you have a model such as your primary mandate is commercial and a percentage, an agreed percentage of those profits goes to the developmental side. But every time you change strategy, you need shareholder approval, and that can take, if not one year, several years. Mm -hmm. And during that period of time, opportunities are lost and people become demoralized. Also, if there's been such a deterioration that you're already in a stage where you could be regarded as trading recklessly, which has serious consequences for the board of directors, then to turn it around is 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 difficult to attract the right level of person where just the application to get the funding in order to turn it around, that alone can take years. So how whereas if somebody's in the private sector, 
they can move a lot more with agility to get something done. So it's the environment is very complex. So I think there is political will in pockets of it, but you're hampered by all the processes as well, and obviously in some instances by people who have a different vision. Which lead to my question, my last question perhaps maybe, because I understand the, the, the importance of, of agility, because that, that's really what makes the world go a lot faster. Um, does it mean that at some point we may look at, we may see the review of the PFMA in view of, 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 of being responsive? You know, because at this point, these kinds of submissions, they take time. Uh, and, 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 you know, unfortunately, when you are in a turnaround mode, you need to, you know, a great, you, you need to push a lot harder and, and, and making sure that the results come through a uh, lot sooner and a lot quicker. Does that mean at some point, as yeah. part of a holistic uh, approach, yes. are, we, are we likely to see a review of some of the, you know, policies? Because I haven't, uh, the last time I checked, I haven't, I don't know when was the PFMA you know, amended. And there's so much that has happened, uh, which coming back to your point, Joanne, um, which suggests that, you know, the agility um, is required because first you have people that are, are quite, you know, well, well capacitated and understand exactly what they need to do, but they can be hampered by the process, you know, which means you can't look at, uh, you know, deployment of people only, but you also have to look at the, the, the extent to which the environment is enabling you know, for them to be lot, you know, to, to be responsive uh, or a lot quicker. Your take on that, Justin? Look, um, in fact, I, I, one, I believe that there is political will now. You know, it starts from the top, and I think the messages are correct. If you start looking at um, what was expressed at the State of the Nation address and then all of the other sessions after that, I think the message has been consistent. It has been, we are going to clean up, we'll clean up in the SOEs, we'll do this and all that. But in terms of your question on the PFMA, the current PFMA does have a provision of, of for instance, in your, if, if you are in a turnaround mode, once your strategy is approved, you then apply to Treasury for a special dispensation, dispensation where um, over a, you, you are granted a period to say when you are in this. It does not mean that you bypass the system. It just creates a system that uh, makes you um, uh, get decisions quicker, but within a framework. So once all of those are signed within the PM. PFMA as well, and also the special dispensation of a signed turnaround strategy, then you are able to do that because in that case, for instance, you're doing uh, cost structuring, you're doing uh, new revenues and all of that. So it does provide for that, you know. Uh, so it depends, and I support the idea. And and in terms of the current shareholder arrangement, you you may as well go back in terms of quickening the approval of a new compact. For instance, if there's a, 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 like the shareholder compact now of SAA has been approved of, of, of the new dispensation. And that, I think, has, has happened in the very short space of time. So now, because there's that will, you're getting all of these processes with, with quicker approvals, you know. So which is why I'm encouraged in terms of seeing, in, seeing them being able to turn around um, the entities. Quite, quite quickly. Would you say the rating agencies are smiling, seeing that uh, there's a, um, that political will and, and there's more results? 
coming through on the basis of uh, what the new administration is promising? I think they're cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's still not clear what's going to be done with SAA. On the one hand, you've heard uh, Tito Nibaweni say it should be closed down. On the other hand, you've had Pravin Gordon say we have to do everything to keep it going. So I think they're waiting to see what will happen to a large extent. And then you also have things that came out in the media in the last few days that Eskom, for example, coal supplies are starting to be critical. So these are the type of things that would be making rating agencies very nervous. But one of the things they, they've always talked about is the political certainty or, or, or policy certainty. But surely when you have two ministers contradicting themselves around one particular issue, that's not all the world. Yes, it continues with policy uncertainty. I mean, I do believe there is a, a, a strategy behind that, but I mean, that is still what's in the public domain for people to infer their own conclusions about. Unfortunately, we don't, we run out of time. <laughs> Justin, thank you very much thank for coming you. through. Thank you. Joanne, thank you very much for coming through. That was John Matheson from Accelerate Property Fund and Mr. Justice Indama from Lulishinga's group. Until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Have a thank good one. Thank you, thank you Namrod. <laughs>